Welcome to Strangely's Reading of Moby Dick. For an explanation of this project and its rationale, please see the Strangely's Moby Dick and Introduction episode of this podcast. Trigger Warning Moby Dick, like many of us, was created prior to 2019. As such, it may contain language, ideas, and situations which might not be up to the standards of the modern reader. Furthermore, it's about muscular semen hunting creatures that are remarkably phallic in shape. It's gonna get sweaty. Strangely presents an unabridged audiobook of Moby Dick, or The Whale, by Herman Melville, Part 13. Chapter 89, Fast Fish and Loose Fish. The allusion to the waif and waif poles in the last chapter but one necessitates some account of the laws and regulations of the whale fishery of which the waif may be deemed the grand symbol and badge. It frequently happens that when several ships are cruising in company, a whale may be struck by one vessel, then escape, and be finally killed and captured by another vessel. And herein are indirectly comprised many minor contingencies, all partaking of this one grand feature. For example, after a weary and perilous chase and capture of a whale, the body may get loose from the ship by reason of a violent storm and drifting far away to leeward, be retaken by a second whaler who, in a calm, snugly tows it alongside without risk of life or line. Thus, the most vexatious and violent disputes would often arise between the fishermen were there not some written or unwritten universal undisputed law applicable to all cases. Perhaps the only formal whaling code authorized by legislative enactment was that of Holland. It was decreed by the States General in A.D. 1695. But though no other nation has ever had any written whaling law, yet the American fishermen have been their own legislators and lawyers in this matter. They have provided a system which for terse comprehensiveness surpasses Justin Tinian's Pandex and the bylaws of the Chinese society for the suppression of meddling with other people's business. Yes, these laws might be engraven on a Queen Anne's farthing or the barb of a harpoon and worn round the neck so small are they. 1. A fast fish belongs to the party fast to it. 2. A loose fish is fair game for anyone who can soonest catch it. But what plays the mischief with this masterly code is the admirable brevity of it, which necessitates a vast volume of commentaries to expound it. First, what is a fast fish? Alive or dead, a fish is technically fast when it is connected with an occupied ship or boat by any medium at all controllable by the occupant or occupants, a mast, an oar, a nine-inch cable, a telegraph wire, or a strand of cobweb is all the same. Likewise, a fish is technically fast when it bears a waif, or any other recognized symbol of possession, so long as the party waifing it plainly evince their ability at any time to take it alongside as well as their intention so to do. There, these are scientific commentaries, but the commentaries of the whalemen themselves sometimes consist in hard words and harder knocks. The coke upon litten of the fist. 
True, among the more upright and honorable whalemen, allowances are always made for peculiar cases, where it would be an outrageous moral injustice for one party to claim possession of a whale previously chased or killed by another party, but others are by no means so scrupulous. Some fifty years ago, there was a curious case of whale trover litigation in England, wherein the plaintiffs set forth that after a hard chase of a whale in the northern seas, and when indeed they, the plaintiffs, had succeeded in harpooning the fish, they were at last, through peril of their lives, obliged to forsake not only their lines, but the boat itself. Ultimately, the defendants, the crew of another ship, came up with the whale, struck, killed, seized, and finally appropriated it before the very eyes of the plaintiffs. And when these defendants were remonstrated with, their captain snapping his fingers in the plaintiff's teeth and assured them that by way of doxology to the deed he had done, he would now retain their line, harpoons, and boat, which had remained attached to the whale at the time of the seizure. Wherefore, the plaintiffs now sued for the recovery of the value of their whale, line, harpoons, and boat. Mr. Erskine was counsel for the defendants, Lord Ellenborough was the judge. In the course of the defense, the witty Erskine went on to illustrate the, his position by alluding to a recent crim con case, wherein a gentleman, after in vain trying to bridle his wife's viciousness, had at last abandoned her upon the seas of life, but in the course of years, repenting of that step, he instituted an action to recover possession of her. Erskine was on the other side, and he then supported it by saying that though the gentleman had originally harpooned the lady and had once had her fast, and by reason of the great stress of her plunging viciousness had at last abandoned her, yet abandon her he did, so that she became a loose fish, and therefore when a subsequent gentleman re-harpooned her, the lady that then became that subsequent gentleman's property, along with whatever harpoon might have been found sticking in her. Now, in the present case, Erskine contended that the examples of the whale and the lady were reciprocally illustrative of each other. These pleadings, and the counter-pleadings being duly heard, the very learned judge in set terms decided, to wit, that as for the boat, he awarded it to the plaintiffs, because they had merely abandoned it to save their lives, but that with regard to the converted whale, the harpoons, and line, they belonged to the defendants, the whale because it was a loose fish at the time of the final capture, and the harpoons and line when the fish made off with them, it, the fish, acquired a property in those articles, and thence anybody who afterwards took the fish had a right to them. Now the defendants afterwards took the fish. Ergo, the aforesaid articles were theirs. A common man looking at this decision of the very learned judge might possibly object to it, but plowed up to the primary rock of the matter the two great principles laid down in the twin whaling laws previously quoted and applied and elucidated by Lord Ellenborough in the above case cited, these two laws touching fast fish and loose fish, I say, will, on reflection, be found the fundamentals of all human jurisprudence. For notwithstanding its complicated tracery of sculpture, the temple of the law, like the temple of the Philistines, had but two props to stand on. Is it not a saying in everyone's mouth, possession is half the law? That is, regardless of how the thing came into possession? But often possession is the whole of the law. What are the sinews and souls of Russian serfs and Republican slaves but fast fish? Whereof possession is the whole of the law? 
What to a rapacious landlord is the widow's last mite but a fast fish? What is yonder undetected villain's marble mansion with a door plate for a waif? What is that but a fast fish? What is the ruinous discount which Mordecai, the broker, gets from poor Wobegon, the bankrupt, on a loan to keep Wobegon's family from starvation? What is that ruinous discount? but a fast fish. What is the Archbishop of Save Souls' income of 100,000 pounds seized from the scant bread and cheese of hundreds of thousands of broken-backed laborers, all sure of heaven without any of Save Souls' help? What is that globular 100,000 pounds but a fast fish? What are the Duke of Dunder's hereditary towns and hamlets but a fast fish? What to the redoubted harpooner John Bull is poor Ireland but a fast fish? What to the apostolic lancer, brother Jonathan, is Texas but a fast fish? And concerning all these is not possession the whole of the law. But if the doctrine of fast fish be generally applicable, the kindred doctrine of loose fish is still more widely so that is, internationally and universally applicable. What was America in 1492 but a lost fish in which Columbus struck the Spanish standard by way of wafing it for his royal master and mistress? What was Poland to the Tsar? What Greece to the Turk? What India to England? What at last will Mexico be to the United States? All loose fish. What are the rights of man and the liberties of the world but loose fish? What all men's minds and opinions but loose fish? What is the principle of religious belief in them but a loose fish? What to the ostentatious smuggling verbalists are the thoughts of thinkers but loose fish? What is the great globe itself but a loose fish? And what are you, reader, but a loose fish and a fast fish too? Chapter 90. Heads or Tails. De Belena vero suffixit, si rex habiat caput, et regina caudum. Bracton, L3, C3. Latin from the books of the laws of England which, taken along with the context, means that of all whales captured by anybody on the coast of that land, the king, as honorary grand harpooner, must have the head, and the queen be respectfully presented with the tail. A division which, in the whale, is much like halving an apple, there is no intermediate remainder. Now, as this law, under a modified form, is to this day in force in England, and as it offers in various respects a strange anomaly touching the general law of fast and loose fish, it is here treated of in a separate chapter. On the same courteous principle that prompts the English railways to be at the expense of a separate car, specially reserved for the accommodation of royalty. In the first place, in curious proof of the fact that the above-mentioned law is still in force, I proceed to lay before you a circumstance that happened within the last two years. It seems that some honest mariners of Dover, or Sandwich, or some other of the Cinque ports, had, after a while, a hard chase succeeding in killing and breaching a fine whale which they had originally descried afar off from the shore. 
Now the Sinke ports are partially, or somehow, under the jurisdiction of a sort of policeman or beadle called the Lord Warden. Holding the office directly from the crown, I believe all the royal emoluments incident to the Sinke port territories become, by assignment, his. By some writers, this office is called a sinecure. But not so. Because the Lord Warden is busily employed at times in fobbing his perquisites, which are his chiefly by virtue of that same fobbing of them. Now, when these poor sunburnt mariners, barefooted and with their trousers rolled high up on their ely legs, had wearily hauled their fast fish high and dry, promising themselves a good 150 pounds from the precious oil and bone, and in fantasy sipping rare tea with their wives and good ale with their cronies, upon the strength of their respective shares, up steps a very learned and most Christian and charitable gentleman with a copy of Blackstone under his arm, and laying it upon the whale's head, he says, Hands off! This fish, my masters, is a fast fish. I seize it as the Lord Warden's. Upon this, the poor mariners, in their respectful consternation, so truly English, knowing not what to say, fall to vigorously scratching their heads all round, meanwhile ruefully glancing from the whale to the stranger, but that did in no wise mend the matter, or at all soften the hard heart of the learned gentleman with the copy of Blackstone. At length one of them, after long scratching about for his ideas, made bold to speak. Please, sir, who is the Lord Warden? The Duke. But the Duke had nothing to do with taking this fish. It is his. We have been at great trouble and peril and some expense, and is all that to go to the Duke's benefit? We getting nothing at all for our pains but our blisters. It is his. Is the Duke so very poor as to be forced to this desperate mode of getting a livelihood? It is his. I thought to relieve my old bedridden mother by part of my share in this whale. It is his. Won't the Duke be content with a quarter or a half? It is his. In a word, the whale was seized and sold, and his grace, the Duke of Wellington, received the money. Thinking that viewed in some particular lights, the case might, by a bare possibility, in some small degree be deemed, under the circumstances, a rather hard one, an honest clergyman of the town respectfully addressed a note to his grace, begging him to take the case of those unfortunate mariners into full consideration. To which the Lord Duke, in substance, replied, both letters were published, that he had already done so, and received the money, and would be obliged to the reverend gentleman if for the future he, the reverend gentleman, would decline meddling with other people's business. Is this the still militant old man standing at the corners of the three kingdoms on all hands coercing alms of beggars? It will readily be seen that, in this case, the alleged right of the duke to the whale was a delegated one from the sovereign. We must needs inquire, then, on what principle the sovereign is originally invested with that right. The law itself has already been set forth, but Plowden gives us the reason for it. Says Plowden, The whale belongs to the king and queen because of its superior excellence. And by the soundest commentators, this has ever been held a cogent argument in such matters. But why should the king have the head and the queen the tail? A reason for that, ye lawyers. In his treatise on Queen Gold, or Queen Pin Money, an old king's bench author, one William Prynne, thus discourseth. Ye tail as ye queens, that ye queen's wardrobe may be supplied with that whalebone.
Now, this was written at a time when the black limber bone of the Greenland or right whale was largely used in ladies' bodices. But this same bone is not in the tail, it is in the head, which is a sad mistake for a sagacious lawyer like Prynne. But is the queen a mermaid to be presented with a tail? An allegorical meaning may lurk here. There are two royal fish so styled by the English law writers, the whale and the sturgeon, both royal property under certain limitations and nominally supplying the tenth branch of the crown's ordinary revenue. I know not that any other author has hinted of the matter, but by inference it seems to me that the sturgeon must be divided in the same way as the whale, the king receiving the highly dense and elastic head peculiar to that fish, which symbolically regarded may possibly be humorously grounded upon some presumed congeniality. And thus there seems a reason in all things, even in law. Chapter 91. The Pequod Meets the Rosebud In vain it was to rake for ambergris in the paunch of this leviathan, insufferable fetter denying not inquiry. Sir T. Brown, V.E. It was a week or two after the last whaling scene recounted, and when we were slowly sailing over a sleepy, vapory midday sea, that the many noses on the Pequod's deck proved more vigilant discoverers than the three pairs of eyes aloft. A peculiar and not very pleasant smell was smelt in the sea. Oh, but something now, said Stubb. But somewhere hereabouts are some of those drugged whales we tickled the other day. I thought they would kill up before long. Presently, the vapors in advance slid aside, and there in the distance lay a ship, whose furled sails betokened that some sort of whale must be alongside. As we glided nearer, the stranger showed French colors from his peak, and by the eddying cloud of vulture sea-fowl that circled and hovered and swooped around him, it was plain that a whale alongside must be what the fishermen call a blasted whale. That is, a whale that has died unmolested in the sea and so floated an unappropriated corpse. It may well be conceived what an unsavory odor such a mass must exhale. Worse than in a Syrian city in the plague, when the living are incompetent to bury the departed. So intolerable indeed it is regarded by some that no cupidity could persuade them to moor alongside it. Yet are there those who will still do it, notwithstanding the fact that the oil obtained from such subjects is of a very inferior quality and by no means of the nature of atta of rose. Coming still nearer with the expiring breeze, we saw that the Frenchman had a second whale alongside, and this second whale seemed even more of a nosegay than the first. In truth, it turned out to be one of those problematical whales that seemed to dry up and die with a sort of prodigious dyspepsia, or indigestion, leaving their defunct bodies almost entirely bankrupt of anything like oil. Nevertheless, in the proper place we shall see that no knowing fisherman will ever turn up his nose at such a whale as this, however much he may shun blasted whales in general. The Pequod had now swept so nigh to the stranger that Stubb vowed he recognized his cutting spade pole entangled in the lines that were knotted round the tail of one of these whales. There's a pretty fellow now, he banteringly laughed, standing in the ship's bows. There's a jackal of ye. 
I will know that these crapples of Frenchmen are but poor devils at fishery, sometimes lowering their boats for breakers, mistaking them for sperm whale spouts, yes, and sometimes sailing their port for the whole full of boxes and tallow candles and cases of snuffers, foreseeing that all the oil they will get will not be enough to dip the captain's wick into. Hey, we all know these things, but looky, here's a crapple that is content with our leavings, a drugged whale there, I mean, hey, and is content too with scraping the dry bones off that precious fish she has there, poor devil. I say, pass around a hat, someone. Let's make him a present of a little oil for dear charity's sake. For what oil he'll get from that drugged whale there wouldn't be fit to burn in jail. No, not in a condemned cell. And as for the other whale, why, I'll be agreed that there may be more oil for chopping up and trying out those three masks of ours than he'll get from that bundle of bones, though now I think of it, it may contain something worth a good deal more than oil. Yes, Ambergris. I wonder now if our old man has thought of that. It's worth trying. Yes, I'm for it. And so saying, he started for the quarterdeck. By this time, the faint air had become a complete calm so that whether or no the Pequod was now fairly entrapped in the smell, with no hope of escaping except by its breezing up again. Issuing from the cabin, Stubb now called his boat's crew and pulled off for the stranger. Drawing across her bow, he perceived that in accordance with the fanciful French taste, the upper part of her stem piece was carved in the likeness of a huge drooping stalk was painted green, and for thorns had copper spikes projecting from it here and there, the whole terminating in a symmetrical folded bulb of a bright red color. Upon her headboards in large gilt letters he read Bouton du Rose, Rose Button, or Rosebud, and this was the romantic name of this aromatic ship. Though Stubb did not understand the bouton part of the inscription, yet the word rosé and the bulbous figurehead put together sufficiently explained the whole to him. Wooden rosebud, eh? He cried with his hand to his nose. They'll do very well, but now, like all creation, it smells. Now, in order to hold direct communication with the people on deck, he had to pull round the bows to the starboard side and thus come close to the blasted whale and so talk over it. Arrived then at this spot, with one hand still to his nose, he bawled, Bouton de Rose, ahoy! Are there any of you on Bouton de Roses that speak English? Yes, rejoined a Guernseyman from the bulwarks, who turned out to be the chief mate. Well then, my Bouton de Rose, bud, have you seen a white whale? What whale? The white whale, a sperm whale, Moby Dick, have you seen him? Never heard of such a whale, Cachala Blanche. White whale? No. Very good then, goodbye now, and I'll call again in a minute. Then rapidly pulling back towards the Pequod and seeing Ahab leaning over the quarterdeck rail awaiting his report, he molded his two hands into a trumpet and shouted, No, sir, no! Upon which Ahab retired, and Stubb returned to the Frenchman. He now perceived that the Guernseyman, who had just got into the chains and was using a cutting spade, had slung his nose in a sort of bag. What's the matter with your nose there? said Stubb. Broke it? I wish it was broken, or that I didn't have any nose at all, answered the Guernseyman, who did not seem to relish the job he was at very much. What are you holding yours for? Oh, nothing is a wax nose. I have to hold it on. Fine day, ain't it? Air rather gardeny, I should say. Throws a bunch of poises, will you, Bouton de Rose? When the devil's name do you want here? roared the Guernseyman, flying into a sudden passion. Oh, keep cool. Cool, yes, that's the word. Why, don't you pack those whales in ice while you're working on them? But, joking aside, though, do you know, Rosebud, that it's all nonsense trying to get any oil from such whales. As for a dried-up one there, it ain't a gill in the whole carcass. I know that well enough, but do you see, the captain here, he won't believe it. This is his first voyage. 
He was a cologne manufacturer before, but come aboard and maybe he'll believe you. If you won't, me, and I'll get out of this dirty scrape. Anything to oblige you, my sweet and pleasant fellow, rejoined Stubb, and with that he soon mounted the deck. There a queer scene presented itself. The sailors, in tasseled caps of red worsted, were getting the heavy tackles in readiness for the whales. But they worked rather slow and talked very fast and seemed in anything but a good humor all their noses upwardly projecting from their faces like so many jib-booms. Now and then, pairs of them would drop their work and run up to the masthead to get some fresh air. Some, thinking they would catch the plague, dipped oakum in coal tar and at intervals held it to their nostrils. Others, having broken the stems of their pipes almost short off at the bowl, were vigorously puffing tobacco smoke, so that it constantly filled their olfactories. Stubb was struck by a shower of outcries and anathemas proceeding from the captain's roundhouse abaft, and looking in that direction saw a fiery face thrust from behind the door, which was held ajar from within. This was the tormented surgeon who, after in vain remonstrating against proceedings of the day, had betaken himself to the captain's roundhouse, gabinet, he called it, to avoid the pest, but still could not help yelling out his entreaties and indignations at all times. Marking all this, Stubb argued well for his scheme and, turning to the Guernseyman, had a little chat with him, during which the stranger mate expressed his detestation of his captain as a conceited ignoramus, who had brought them all into so unsavory and unprofitable a pickle. Sounding him carefully, Stubb further perceived that the Guernseyman had not the slightest suspicion concerning the ambergris. He therefore held his peace on that head, but otherwise was quite frank and confidential with him, so that the two quickly concocted a little plan for both circumventing and satirizing the captain, without his at all dreaming or of distrusting their sincerity. According to this little plan of theirs, the Guernseyman, under cover of an interpreter's office, was to tell the captain what he pleased, but as coming from Stubb, and as for Stubb, he was to utter any nonsense that should come utmost to him during the interview. By this time, their destined victim appeared from his cabin. He was a small and dark but rather delicate-looking man for a sea captain with red whiskers and a moustache. However, he wore a red cotton velvet vest with watch seals at his side. To this gentleman, Stubb was now politely introduced by the Guernseyman, who at once ostentatiously put on the aspect of interpreting between them. What shall I say to him first? said he. Why, said Stubb, eyeing the velvet vest and the watch and seals, you may as well begin by telling him that he looks like a sort of babyish to me, though I don't pretend to be a judge. He says, monsieur said the Guernseyman in French, turning to his captain, that only yesterday his ship spoke a vessel, whose captain and chief mate with six sailors had all died of a fever caught from a blasted whale that they had brought alongside. Upon this, the captain started and eagerly desired to know more. What now? said the Guernseyman to Stubb. Why, since he takes it so easy, tell him that now I have eyed him more carefully. I can quite certain that he's no more fit to command a whale ship than St. Jago Monkey. In fact, tell him that for me he's a baboon. He vows and declares, monsieur, that the other whale, the dried one, is far more deadly than the blasted one. In fact, monsieur, he conjures us, as we value our lives, to cut loose from those fish. Instantly the captain ran forward and in a loud voice commanded his crew to desist from hoisting the cutting tackles, and at once cut loose the cables and chains confining the whales to the ship. What now? said the Guernsey men when the captain had returned to them. Why, let me see. Yes. You may tell him now that, in fact, tell him I diddled him 
and aside to himself, perhaps somebody else. He says, Monsieur, that he's happy to have been of service to us. Hearing this, the captain vowed that they were the grateful parties, meaning himself and the mate, and concluded by having stubbed down to his cabin to drink a bottle of Bordeaux. He wants you to take a glass of wine with him, said the interpreter. Thank him heartily, but tell him it's against my principles to drink with a man I've diddled. In fact, tell him I must go. He says, Monsieur, that his principles won't admit of his drinking, but that if Monsieur wants to live another day to drink, then Monsieur had best drop all four boats and pull the ship away from these whales, for it's so calm they won't drift. By this time, Stubb was over the side and, getting into his boat, hailed the Guernseyman to this effect that having a long tow-line in his boat, he would do what he could to help them by pulling out the lighter whale of the two from the ship's side. While the Frenchman's boats, then, were engaged in towing the ship one way, Stubb benevolently towed away at his whale the other way, ostentatiously slacking out a most unusually long tow-line. Presently, a breeze sprang up. Stubb feigned to cast off from the whale, hoisting his boats. The Frenchman soon increased his distance, while the Pequod slid in between him and Stubb's whale, whereupon Stubb quickly pulled to the floating body and, hailing the Pequod, gave notice of his intentions, at once proceeding to reap the fruit of his unrighteous cunning. Seizing his sharp boat spade, he commenced an excavation in the body, a little behind the side fin. You would almost have thought he was digging a cellar there in the sea when at length his spade struck against the gaunt ribs. It was like turning up old Roman tiles and pottery buried in fat English loam. His boat's crew were all in high excitement, eagerly helping their chief and looking as anxious as gold hunters. And all the time, numberless fowls were diving and ducking and screaming and yelling and fighting around them. Stubb was beginning to look disappointed, especially as the horrible nosegay increased, when suddenly from out of the very heart of this plague there stole a faint stream of perfume, which flowed through the tide of bad smells without being absorbed by it as one river will flow into and then along with another without at all blending with it for a time. I have it! I have it! cried Stubb with delight, striking something in the subterranean regions. A purse! A purse! Dropping his spade, he thrust both hands in and drew out handfuls of something that looked like ripe Windsor soap, or rich mottled old cheese, very unctuous and savory withal. You might easily dent it with your thumb, it is of a hue between yellow and ash color. And this, good friends, is ambergris, worth a gold guinea an ounce to any druggist. Some six handfuls were obtained, but more was unavoidably lost in the sea, and still more, perhaps, might have been secured were it not for impatient Ahab's loud command to stub to desist and come on board, else the ship would bid them goodbye. Chapter 92 Ambergris now this ambergris is a very curious substance, and so important as an article of commerce that in 1791 a certain Nantucket-born Captain Coffin was examined at the bar of the English House of Commons on that subject, for at that time, and indeed until a comparatively late day, the precise origin of ambergris remained, like amber itself, a problem to the learned. Though the word ambergris is but the French compound for grey amber, Yet the two substances are quite distinct, for amber, though at times found on the seacoast, is also dug up in some far inland soils, whereas ambergris is never found except upon the sea. 
Besides, amber is a hard, transparent, brittle, odorless substance used for mouthpieces to pipes, for beads and ornaments, but ambergris is soft, waxy, and so highly fragrant and spicy that it is largely used in perfumery, in pastilles, precious candles, hair powders, and pomatum. The Turks use it in cooking and also carry it to Mecca for the same purpose that frankincense is carried to St. Peter's in Rome. Some wine merchants drop a few grains into claret to flavor it. Who would think then that such fine ladies and gentlemen should regale themselves with an essence found in the inglorious bowels of a sick whale? Yet so it is. By some, ambergris is supposed to be the cause, and by others the effect of the dyspepsia in the whale. How to cure such a dyspepsia it were hard to say, unless by administering three or four boatloads of Brandreth's pills, and then running out of harm's way, as laborers do in blasting rocks. I have forgotten to say that there were found in this ambergris certain hard, round, bony plates which at first Stubb thought might be sailors' trousers buttons, but it afterwards turned out they were nothing more than pieces of small squid bones embalmed in that matter. Now, that the incorruption of this most fragrant ambergris should be found in the heart of such decay? Is this nothing? Bethink thee of that saying of St. Paul in Corinthians about corruption and incorruption, how that we are sown in dishonor, but raised in glory. And likewise call to mind that saying of Paracelsus about what it is that maketh the best musk. Also, forget not the strange fact that of all things of ill savor, cologne water, in its most rudimental manufacturing stages, is the worst. I should like to conclude this chapter with the above appeal, but cannot, owing to my anxiety to repel a challenge often made against whalemen, and which, in the estimation of some already biased minds, might be considered as indirectly substantiated by what has been said of the Frenchman's two whales. Elsewhere in this volume, the slanderous aspersion has been disproved that the vocation of whaling is thoroughly a slatternly, untidy business, but there is another thing to rebut. They hint that all whales always smell bad. Now how did this odious stigma originate? I opine that it is plainly traceable to the first arrival of the Greenland whaling ships in London more than two centuries ago. Because these whalemen did not then, and do not now, try out their oil at sea as the southern ships have always done, but cutting up the fresh blubber in small bits, thrust it through the bungholes of large casks, and carry it home in this manner, the shortness of the season in those icy seas and the sudden and violent storms to which they are exposed forbidding any other course. The consequence is that upon breaking into the hold and unloading one of these whale cemeteries in the Greenland dock, a savor is given forth somewhat similar to that arising from excavating an old city graveyard for the foundations of a lying-in hospital. I partly surmise also that this wicked charge against whalers may be likewise imputed to the existence on the coast of Greenland in former times of a Dutch village called Schmurenberg or Schmierenberg which latter name is the one used by the learned Fogo von Slack in his great work on smells, a textbook on that subject. As its name imports, Schmier, Fat, Burg, to put up, this village was founded in order to afford a place for the blubber of the Dutch whale fleet to be tried out without being taken home to Holland for that purpose. It was a collection of furnaces, fat kettles, and oil sheds, and when the works were in full operation certainly gave forth no very pleasant savor. 
But all this is quite different with a South Sea sperm whaler, which in a voyage of four years, perhaps after completely filling her hold with oil, does not, perhaps, consume 50 days in the business of boiling out, and in the state that it is casked, the oil is nearly scentless. The truth is that living or dead, if but decently treated, whales as a species are by no means creatures of ill odor. Nor can whalemen be recognized as the people of the Middle Ages affected to detect a Jew in the company by the nose. Nor indeed can the whale possibly be otherwise than fragrant when, as a general thing, he enjoys such high health, taking abundance of exercise always out of doors, though it is true seldom in the open air. I say that the motion of a sperm whale's flukes above the water dispenses a perfume, as when a musk-scented lady rustles her dress in a warm parlor. What then shall I liken the sperm whale to for fragrance, considering his magnitude? Must it not be to that famous elephant with jeweled tusks and redolent with myrrh which was led out of an Indian town to do honor to Alexander the Great? Chapter 93 The Castaway it was but some few days after encountering the Frenchman that a most significant event befell the most insignificant of the Pequod's crew, an event most lamentable and which ended in providing the sometimes madly merry and predestinated craft with a living and ever accompanying prophecy of whatever shattered sequel might prove her own. Now, in the whale ship, it is not everyone that goes in the boats. Some few hands are reserved, called shipkeepers whose province it is to work the vessel while the boats are pursuing the whale. As a general thing, these shipkeepers are as hardy fellows as the men comprising the boat's crews, but if there happen to be an unduly slender, clumsy, or timorous white in the ship, that white is certain to be made a shipkeeper. It was so in the Pequod with the little negro Pippin by nickname, Pip by abbreviation. Poor Pip! Ye have heard of him before, you must remember his tambourine on that dramatic midnight so gloomy jolly. In outer aspect, Pip and Doughboy made a match, like a black pony and a white one of equal developments though of dissimilar color driven in one eccentric span. But while hapless Doughboy was by nature dull and torpid in his intellects, Pip, though over tender hearted, was at bottom very bright, with that pleasant, genial, jolly brightness peculiar to his tribe, a tribe which ever enjoy all holidays and festivals with finer, freer relish than any other race. For blacks, the year's calendar should show naught but 365 Fourth of Julys and New Year's Days. Nor smile so, while I write that this little black was brilliant, for even blackness has its brilliancy. Behold yon lustrous ebony paneling the king's cabinets. But Pip loved life, and all life's peaceable securities, so that the panic-stricken business in which he had somehow unaccountably become entrapped had most sadly blurred his brightness. Though, as ere long will be seen, what was thus temporarily subdued in him in the end was destined to be luridly illuminated by strange wild fires, that fictitiously showed him off to ten times the natural luster with which, in his native Tolland County in Connecticut, he had once enlivened many a fiddler's frolic on the green, and at melodious eventide, with his gay ha-ha, had turned the round horizon into one star-bellied tambourine. So, though in the clear air of day suspended against a blue-veined neck, the pure-watered diamond drop will healthful glow, 
Yet, when the cunning jeweler would show you the diamond in its most impressive luster, he lays it against a gloomy ground, and then lights it up, not by the sun, but by some unnatural gases. Then come out of those fiery effulgences, infernally superb, then the ever-blazing diamond, once the divinest symbol of the crystal skies, looks like some crown jewel stolen from the king of hell. But let us to the story. It came to pass that in the ambergris affair Stubbs after Oarsman chanced so to sprain his hand, as for a time to become quite maimed, and temporarily Pip was put into his place. The first time Stubb lowered with him, Pip evinced much nervousness, but happily for that time escaped close contact with the whale, and therefore came off not altogether discreditably, though Stubb observing him took care afterwards to exhort him to cherish his courageousness to the utmost, for he might often find it needful. Now, upon the second lowering, the boat paddled upon the whale, and as the fish received the darted iron, it gave its customary rap, which happened in this instance to be right under poor Pip's seat. The involuntary consternation of the moment caused him to leap, paddle in hand, out of the boat in such a way that part of the slack whale line coming across his chest, he breasted it overboard with him so as to become entangled in it when at last plumping into the water. That instant the stricken whale started on its fierce run, the line swiftly straightened, and presto, poor Pip came all foaming up to the chocks of the boat, remorselessly dragged there by the line which had taken several turns about his chest and neck. Tashtigo stood in the bows. He was full of the fire of the hunt. He hated Pip for a poltroon. Snatching the boat knife from its sheath, he suspended his sharp edge over the line, turning to towards Stubb, exclaimed interrogatively, Cut! Meanwhile, Pip's blue choked face plainly looked, do for God's sake! All passed in a flash. In less than half a minute, this entire thing happened. Dim him, cut! roared Stubb, and so the whale was lost and Pip was saved. So soon as he recovered himself, the poor little negro was assailed by yells and execrations from the crew. Tranquilly permitting these irregular cursings to evaporate, Stubb then, in a plain, businesslike, but still half humorous manner, cursed Pip officially and that done unofficially gave him much wholesome advice. The substance was, never jump from a boat, Pip, except, but all the rest was indefinite, as the soundest advice ever is. Now, in general, stick to the boat is your true motto in whaling, but cases will sometimes happen when leap from the boat is still better. Moreover, as if perceiving at last that if he should give undiluted conscientious advice to Pip, he would be leaving him too wide a margin to jump in for the future, Stubb suddenly dropped all advice and concluded with a peremptory command. Stick to the boat, Pip, or by the Lord, I won't pick you up if you jump. Mind that. We can't afford to lose whales for the likes of you. A whale would sell for 30 times more than you would, Pip, in Alabama. Bear that in mind and don't jump anymore. Hereby, perhaps Stubb indirectly hinted that though man loved his fellow, yet man is a money-making animal, which propensity, too, often interferes with his benevolence. But we are all in the hands of the gods, and Pip jumped again. It was under very similar circumstances to the first performance, but this time he did not breast out the line, and hence when the whale started to run, Pip was left behind on the sea like a hurried traveler's trunk. Alas, Stubb was but too true to his word. It was a beautiful, bounteous blue day, the spangled sea calm and cool, and flatly stretching away all round to the horizon like Goldbeater's skin hammered out to the extremist. Bobbing up and down in that sea, Pip's ebon head showed like a head of cloves. 
No boat knife was lifted when he fell so rapidly astern, Stubbs' inexorable back was turned upon him, and the whale was winged. In three minutes, a whole mile of shoreless ocean was between Pip and Stubb. Out from the center of the sea, poor Pip turned his crisp, curling black head to the sun, another lonely castaway, though the loftiest and the brightest. Now, in calm water, to swim in the open ocean is as easy to the practiced swimmer as to ride in a spring carriage ashore. But the awful lonesomeness is intolerable. The intense concentration of self in the middle of such a heartless immensity, my God, who can take it? Mark how when sailors in a dead calm bathe in the open sea, mark how closely they hug their ship and only coast along her sides. But had Stubb really abandoned the poor little negro to his fate? No, he did not mean to, at least, because there were two boats in his wake, and he supposed, no doubt, that they would, of course, come up to Pip very quickly and pick him up. Though, indeed, such considerations towards oarsmen jeopardized through their own timidity is not always manifested by the hunters in all similar instances, and such instances not infrequently occur, almost invariably in the fishery, a coward so-called is marked with the same ruthless detestation peculiar to the military navies and armies. But it so happened that those boats, without seeing Pip suddenly spying whales close to them on one side, turned and gave chase, and Stubbs' boat was now so far away, and he and all his crew so intent upon his fish, that Pip's ringed horizon began to expand around him miserably. By the merest chance, the ship itself at last rescued him, but from that hour the little negro went about on deck as an idiot. Such at least they said he was. The sea had jeeringly kept his finite body up, but drowned the infinite of his soul. Not drowned entirely, though. Rather, carried down alive to wondrous depths, where strange shapes of an unwarped primal world glided to and fro before his passive eyes. And the miser merman, wisdom, revealed his hoarded heaps, and among the joyous, heartless, ever-juvenile eternities, Pip saw the multitudinous, God-omnipresent coral insects that out of the firmament of waters heaved the colossal orbs. He saw God's foot upon the treadle of the loom and spoke it, and therefore his shipmates called him mad. So man's insanity is heaven's sense. And wandering from all mortal reason, man comes at last to that celestial thought which no reason is absurd and frantic, and weal or woe feels then uncompromised, indifferent as his God. For the rest, blame not Stubb too hardly. The thing is common in that fishery, and in the sequel of the narrative it will be seen what abandonment befell myself. Chapter 94. A Squeeze of the Hand That whale of stubs, so dearly purchased, was duly brought to the Pequod's side, where all those cutting and hoisting operations previously detailed were regularly gone through, even to the bailing of the Heidelberg Tun, or case. While some were occupied with this latter duty, others were employed in dragging away the larger tubs, so soon as filled with the sperm, and when the proper time arrived, this same sperm was carefully manipulated ere going to the triworks, of which anon. It had cooled and crystallized to such a degree that when, with several others, I sat down before a large Constantine's bath of it, 
I found it strangely concreted into lumps, here and there rolling about in the liquid part. It was our business to squeeze these lumps back into fluid, a sweet and unctuous duty. No wonder that in old times this sperm was such a favorite cosmetic, such a clearer, such a sweetener, such a softener, such a delicious mollifier. After having my hands in it for only a few minutes, my fingers felt like eels and began, as it were, to serpentine and spiralize. As I sat there at my ease, cross-legged on the deck, after the bitter exertion at the windlass under a blue, tranquil sky, the ship under indolent sail and gliding along so serenely, as I bathed my hands among those soft, gentle globules of infiltrated tissues, woven almost within the hour as they richly broke to my fingers, and discharged all the opulence like fully ripe grapes their wine as I sniffed up that uncontaminated aroma, literally and truly, like the smell of spring violets, I declare to you that for the time I lived as in a musky meadow, I forgot all about our horrible oath in that inexpressible sperm. I washed my hands and my heart of it. I almost began to credit the old Paracelsian superstition that sperm is of rare virtue in allaying the heat of anger. While bathing in that bath, I felt divinely free from all ill will or petulance or malice of any sort whatsoever. Squeeze, squeeze, squeeze. All morning long I squeezed that sperm till I myself almost melted into it. I squeezed that sperm till a strange sort of insanity came over me, and I found myself unwittingly squeezing my co-laborers' hands in it, mistaking their hands for gentle globules. Such an abounding, affectionate, friendly, loving feeling did this avocation beget that at last I was continually squeezing their hands and looking up into their eyes sentimentally as much to say, Oh, my dear fellow beings, why should we longer cherish any social acerbities or know the slightest ill humor or envy? Come. Let us squeeze hands all round. Nay, let us all squeeze ourselves into each other. Let us squeeze ourselves universally into the very milk and sperm of kindness. Would that I could keep squeezing that sperm forever. For now, since by many prolonged repeated experiences, I have perceived that in all cases man must eventually lower or at least shift his conceit of attainable felicity, not placing it anywhere in the intellect or the fancy, but in the wife, the heart, the bed, the table, the saddle, the fireside, the country. Now that I have perceived all this, I am ready to squeeze case eternally. In thoughts of the visions of the night, I saw long rows of angels in paradise, each with his hands in a jar of spermaceti. Now... While discoursing of sperm, it behooves to speak of other things akin to it in the business of preparing the sperm whale for the triworks. First comes white horse, so called, which is obtained from the tapering part of the fish and also from the thicker portions of his flukes. It is tough with congealed tendons, a wad of muscle, but still contains some oil. After being severed from the whale, the white horse is first cut into portable oblongs ere going to the mincer. They look much like blocks of Berkshire marble. 
Plum pudding is the term bestowed upon certain fragmentary parts of the whale's flesh, here and there adhering to the blanket of blubber and often participating to a considerable degree in its unctuousness. It is most refreshing, convivial, beautiful object to behold. As its name imports, it is of an exceedingly rich, mottled tint with a bestreaked snowy and golden ground, dotted with spots of deepest crimson and purple. It is plums of rubies in pictures of citron. Spite of reason, it is hard to keep yourself from eating it. I confess that once I stole behind the foremast to try it, it tasted something as I should conceive a royal cutlet from the thigh of Louis Le Roy might have tasted, supposing him to have been killed the first day after the venison season, and that particular venison season contemporary with the unusually fine vintage of the vineyards of Champagne. There is another substance, and a very singular one, which turns up in the course of this business, but which I feel it would be very puzzling adequately to describe. It is called Slobgolian, an appellation original with the whalemen, and even so is the nature of the substance. It is an ineffably oozy, stringy affair, most frequently found in the tubs of sperm after prolonged squeezing and subsequent decanting. I hold it to be the wondrously thin, ruptured membranes of the case coalescing. Guri, so-called, is a term properly belonging to the right whaleman, but sometimes incidentally used by the sperm fishermen. It designates the dark, glutinous substance which is scraped off the back of the Greenland or right whale, and much of which covers the decks of those inferior souls who hunt that ignoble leviathan. Nippers. Strictly, this word is not indigenous to the whale's vocabulary, but as applied by whalemen, it becomes so. A whaleman's nipper is a short, firm strip of tendinous stuff cut from the tapering part of Leviathan's tail. It averages an inch in thickness and, for the rest, is about the size of the iron part of a hoe. Edgewise moved along the oily deck, it operates like a leathern squilgee, and by nameless blandishments, as of magic, allures along with it all impurities. But to learn of all about these recondite matters, your best way is at once to descend into the blubber room and have a long talk with its inmates. This place has previously been mentioned as the receptacle for the blanket pieces when stripped and hoisted from the whale. When the proper time arrives for cutting up its contents, this apartment is a scene of terror to all tiros, especially by night. On one side, lit by a dull lantern, a space has been left clear for the workmen. They generally go in pairs, a pike and gaff man, and a spade man. The whaling pike is similar to a frigate's boarding weapon of the same name. The gaff is something like a boat hook. With his gaff, the gaff man hooks on to the sheet of blubber and strives to hold it from slipping as the ship pitches and lurches about. Meanwhile, the spade man stands on the sheet itself, perpendicularly chopping it into the portable horse pieces. This spade is sharp as hone can make it. The spademan's feet are shoeless. The thing he stands on will sometimes irresistibly slide away from him like a sledge. If he cuts off one of his own toes or another one of his assistants, who would be very much astonished? Toes are scarce among veteran blubber room men. Chapter 95 The Cassock 
Had you stepped on board the Pequod at a certain juncture of this post-mortemizing of the whale, and had you strolled forward nigh the windlass, pretty sure I am that you would have scanned with no small curiosity a very strange, enigmatical object, which you would have seen there, lying along lengthwise in the lee scuppers. Not the wondrous cistern in the whale's huge head, not the prodigy of his unhinged lower jaw, not the miracle of his symmetrical tail, none of these would so surprise you as half a glimpse of that unaccountable cone. Longer than a Kentuckian is tall, nigh a foot in diameter at the base, and jet black as Yojo, the ebony idol of Queequeg. And an idol indeed it is, or rather in old times its likeness was. Such an idol as that found in the secret groves of Queen Macha in Judea, and for worshipping which King Asa her son did depose her, and destroyed the idol, and burnt it for the abomination at the brook of Kadrun, as darkly set forth in the fifteenth chapter of the first book of Kings. Look at the sailor called the Mincer, who now comes along and, assisted by two allies, heavily backs the Grandissimus, as mariners call it, and, with bowed shoulders, staggers off with it as if he were a grenadier carrying a dead comrade from the field. Extending it upon the forecastle deck, he now proceeds cylindrically to remove its dark pelt as an African hunter the pelt of a boa. This done, he turns the pelt inside out like a pantaloon leg, gives it a good stretching so as almost to double its diameter, and at last hangs it well spread in the rigging to dry. Ere long it is taken down when removing some three feet of it towards the pointed extremity and then cutting two slits for armholes at the other end, he lengthwise slips himself bodily into it. The mincer now stands before you, invested in the full canonicals of his calling. Immemorial to all his order, this investiture alone will adequately protect him while employed in the peculiar functions of his office. That office consists in mincing the horse pieces of blubber for the pots, an operation which is conducted at a curious wooden horse planted endwise against the bulwarks and with a capacious tub beneath it into which the minced pieces drop, fast as the sheets from a wrapped orator's desk. Arrayed in decent black, occupying a conspicuous pulpit intent on Bible leaves, what a candidate for an archbishopric, what a lad for a pope, were this mincer. Footnote. Bible leaves! Bible leaves! This is the invariable cry from the mates to the mincer. It enjoins him to be careful and cut his work into as thin slices as possible, inasmuch as by doing the business of boiling out the oil is much accelerated and its quantity considerably increased, besides being improving the quality. End footnote. Chapter 96. The Triworks. Besides her hoisted boats, an American whaler is outwardly distinguished by her triworks. She presents the curious anomaly of the most solid masonry joining with oak and hemp in constituting the completed ship. It is as if from the open field a brick kiln were transported to her planks. The triworks are planted between the foremast and the mainmast, the most roomy part of the deck. The timbers beneath are of peculiar strength, fitted to sustain the weight of an almost solid mass of brick and mortar, some ten feet by eight square and five in height. 
The foundation does not penetrate the deck, but the masonry is firmly secured to the surface by ponderous knees of iron bracing it on all sides and screwing it down to the timbers. On the flanks it is cased with wood and at top completely covered by a large, sloping, battened hatchway. Removing this hatch we expose the great tripods, two in number and each of several barrels capacity. When not in use they are kept remarkably clean. Sometimes they are polished with soapstone and sand till they shine within like silver punch bowls. During the night watches some cynical old sailors will crawl into them and coil themselves away there for a nap. While employed in polishing them, one man in each pot side by side, many confidential communications are carried on over the iron lips. It is a place also for profound mathematical meditation. It was in the left-hand tripod of the Pequod with the soapstone diligently circling round me that I was first indirectly struck by the remarkable fact that in geometry all bodies gliding along the cycloid, my soapstone for example, will descend from any point in previously the same time. Removing the fireboard from the front of the triworks, the bare masonry of that side is exposed, penetrated by the two iron mouths of the furnaces directly underneath the pots. These mouths are fitted with heavy doors of iron. The intense heat of the fire is prevented from communicating itself to the deck by means of a shallow reservoir extending under the entire enclosed surface of the works. By a tunnel inserted at the rear, this reservoir is kept replenished with water as fast as it evaporates. There are no external chimneys. They open direct from the rear wall. And here, let us go back for a moment. It was about nine o'clock at night that the Pequod's triworks were first started on this present voyage. It belonged to Stubb to oversee the business. You ready there? Off hatch then, and starter, you cook fire the works. This was an easy thing, for the carpenter had been thrusting his shavings into the furnace throughout the passage. Here be it said that in a whaling voyage, the first fire in the triworks has to be fed for a time with wood. After that, no wood is used except as a means of quick ignition to the staple fuel. In a word, after being tried out, the crisp, shriveled blubber, now called scraps or fritters, still contains considerable of its unctuous properties. These fritters feed the flames. Like a plethoric burning martyr or a self-consuming misanthrope, once ignited, the whale supplies his own fuel and burns by his own body. Would that he consumed his own smoke! For his smoke is horrible to inhale, and inhale it you must. And not only that, but you must live in it for the time. It has an unspeakable, wild, Hindu odor about it, such as may lurk in the vicinity of funeral pyres. It smells like the left wing of the Day of Judgment. It is an argument for the pit. By midnight, the works were in full operation. We were clear from the carcass. Sail had been made, the wind was freshening, the wild ocean darkness was intense. But that darkness was licked up by the fierce flames, which at intervals forked forth from the sooty flues, and illuminated every lofty rope in the rigging as with the famed Greek fire. The burning ship drove on, as if remorselessly commissioned by some vengeful deed. So the pitch and sulfur-freighted brigs of the bold Hydrioti Canaris issued from their midnight harbors, with broad sheets of flame for sails, bore down on the Turkish frigates, and folded them in conflagrations. The hatch, removed from the top of the works, now afforded a wide hearth in front of them. 
Standing on this were the Tartarian shapes of the pagan harpooners, always the whale ship's stokers. With huge, pronged poles, they pitched hissing masses of blubber into the scalding pots, or stirred up the fires beneath till the snaky flames darted, curling out of the doors to catch them by the feet. The smoke rolled away in sullen heaps. To every pitch of the ship there was a pitch of the boiling oil which seemed all eagerness to leap into their faces. Opposite the mouth of the works, on the further side of the wide wooden hearth, was the windlass. This served for a sea sofa. Here lounged the watch, when not otherwise employed, looking into the red heat of the fire, till their eyes felt scorched in their heads. Their tawny features, now all begrimed with smoke and sweat, their matted beards and the contrasting barbaric brilliancy of their teeth, all these were strangely revealed in the capricious emblazonings of the works. As they narrated to each other their unholy adventures, their tales of terror told words of mirth, as their uncivilized laughter forked upwards out of them like the flames from the furnace. As to and fro in their front the harpooners wildly gesticulated with their huge pronged forks and dippers, as the wind howled on and the sea leapt and the ship groaned and dived, and yet steadfastly shot her red hell further and further into the blackness of the sea and the night, and scornfully champed the white bone in her mouth, and viciously spat round her on all sides, then the rushing Pequod freighted with savages and laden with fire and burning a corpse and plunging into the blackness of darkness seemed the material counterpart of her monomaniac commander's soul. So seemed it to me as I stood at her helm and for long hours silently guided the way of this fireship on the sea. Wrapped for that interval in darkness myself, I but the better saw the redness, the madness, the ghastliness of others. The continual sight of the fiend shapes before me capering half in smoke and half in fire, these at last begat kindred visions in my soul, so soon as I began to yield that unaccountable drowsiness which ever would come over me on a midnight helm. But that night in particular, a strange and forever since inexplicable thing occurred to me. Starting from a brief standing sleep, I was horribly conscious of something fatally wrong, the jawbone tiller smote my side, which leaned against it. In my ears was the low hum of the sails, just beginning to shake in the wind. I thought my eyes were open. I was half conscious of putting my fingers to the lids and mechanically stretching them still further apart. But spite of all this, I could see no compass before me to steer by. Though it seemed only a minute since I had been watching the card by the steady binnacle lamp illuminating it. Nothing seemed before me but a jet gloom now and then made ghastly by flashes of redness. Uppermost was the impression by whatever swift rushing thing I stood on was not so much bound for any haven ahead as rushing from all havens astern. A stark, bewildering feeling as of death came over me. Convulsively my hands grasped the tiller, but with the crazy conceit that the tiller was, somehow, in some enchanted way, inverted. My God, what was the matter with me, thought I. Lo, in my brief sleep I had turned myself about and was fronting the ship's stern with my back to her prow and the compass. In an instant I faced back just in time to prevent the vessel from flying up into the wind and very probably capsizing her. How glad and how grateful the relief from this unnatural hallucination of the night and the fatal contingency of being brought by the lee. Look not too long in the face of the fire, O oh man. 
Never dream with thy hand on the helm. Turn not thy back to the compass except the first hint of the hitching tiller. Believe not the artificial fire when its redness makes all things look ghastly. Tomorrow, in the natural sun, the skies will be bright. Those who glared like devils in the forked flames, the morn will show in far other, at least gentler relief. The glorious golden glad sun, the only true lamp. All others but liars. Nevertheless, the sun hides not Virginia's dismal swamp, nor Rome's accursed Campagna, nor wide Sahara, nor all the millions of miles of deserts and of griefs beneath the moon. The sun hides not the ocean, which is the dark side of this earth, and which is two-thirds of this earth. So therefore, that mortal man who hath more of joy than sorrow in him, that mortal man cannot be true, not true or underdeveloped. With books the same. The truest of all men was the man of sorrows, and the truest of all books is Solomon's, and Ecclesiastes is the fine hammered steel of woe. All is vanity, all. This willful world hath not got hold of unchristian Solomon's wisdom yet. But he who dodges hospitals and jails and walks fast crossing graveyards and would rather talk of operas than hell calls Cowper, Young, Pascal, Rousseau, poor devils all of sick men, and throughout a carefree lifetime swears by Rebelius as passing wise and therefore jolly, not that man is fitted to sit down on tombstones and break the green damp mold with unfathomably wondrous Solomon. But even Solomon, he says, The man that wandereth out of the way of understanding shall remain, i.e., even while living, in the congregation of the dead. Give not thyself up, then, to fire, lest it invert thee, deaden thee, as for a time it did me. There is a wisdom that is woe, but there is a woe that is madness. And there is a Catskill eagle in some souls that can alike dive down into the blackest gorges and soar out of them again and become invisible in the sunny spaces. And even if he forever flies within the gorge, that gorge is as the mountains, so that even in his lowest swoop, the mountain eagle is still higher than other birds upon the plain, even though they soar. Chapter 97. The Lamp. Had you descended from the Pequod's triworks to the Pequod's forecastle, where the off-duty watch were sleeping, for one single moment you would have almost thought you were standing in some illuminated shrine of canonized kings and counselors. There they lay in their triangular oaken vaults, each mariner a chiseled muteness, a score of lamps flashing upon his hooded eyes. In merchantmen, oil for the sailor is more scarce than the milk of queens. To dress in the dark and eat in the dark and stumble in darkness to his palate, this is his usual lot. But the whaleman, as he seeks the food of light, so he lives in light. He makes his berth in Aladdin's lamp and lays him down in it so that in the pitchiest night the ship's black hull still houses an illumination. 
See with what entire freedom the whaleman takes his handful of lamps, often but old bottles and vials, though, to the copper cooler at the triworks and replenishes them there as mugs of ale at a vat. He burns, too, the purest of oil in its unmanufactured and therefore unvitiated state, a fluid unknown to solar, lunar, or astral contrivances ashore. It is sweet as early grass butter in April. He goes and hunts for his oil so as to be sure of its freshness and genuineness, even as the traveler on the prairie hunts up his own supper of game. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of Strangely's Moby Dick. If you have comments, questions, or would like to purchase the full audiobook of this project straight away, please send an email to saftp at tuta.io. That's saftp at tuta.io. This project was supported by a distinguished group of wonderful patrons. Visit patreon.com strangely to learn more about how you can aid my ongoing attempts to amuse, inform, and occasionally mystify. I'll see you all in two weeks.